Hello, this is Disturbed Minds, and I'm your host, Maddie Day. Before we get into the story, I need to let you know that this is a true crime podcast, so some content may be difficult to hear or may be triggering for some listeners. Any especially disturbing stories will have further disclaimers. I am no expert, I am just fascinated by the darker side of humanity, and I enjoy discussing it with friends. I never intend to glamorize these perpetrators or their crimes, only to honor the victims and their memories. The following story contains some graphic details involving the death of children. Listener discretion is advised. heavy hitter for you um i'm gonna tell you about jonestown okay do you know jonestown no the cult no oh i don't well even better (laughs) okay so start off i'll tell you about jim jim jones started the cult he was born in 1931 when he was growing up he studied joseph stalin Karl marx and hitler Wow. Childhood acquaintances remembered him as a strange kid who was obsessed with death and religion. And um, some people said that he often held funerals on his parents' property for small animals. And he even once stabbed a cat to death, according to these people. This is all officially alleged. He also at one point claimed that his father was a member of the KKK and uh, wouldn't let him have his black friends over. And they often argued about it because he was a big advocate for equal rights and actually eventually married a black woman. So he started working as a self-ordained Christian minister in Indiana in the early 1950s. He also believed that there was going to be a nuclear holocaust in the U.S. like any day now. And when he, he decided to make his own church. And one of the ways he raised money for it was to sell live monkeys. He would, like, like door-to-door salesmen just knock on your door. Hey, do you want a fucking monkey? <laughs> he married Marceline Baldwin in 1949, who was with him till the end. And he had, they had nine children, but only one was actually biologically theirs. He also had multiple mistresses, several of which who were also with him till the end. December 13, 1973, he was arrested for lewd sexual behavior for masturbating in a movie theater in L.A. Oh my. <laughs> so he founded the cult in the 1950s and called it the People's Temple. 
he didn't call it a cult he called it a church it was based on evangelical christianity new age spirituality and radical social justice so he founded it in indiana in 1965 he moved their church to redwood valley in northern california and then in the early 70s they moved to san francisco and also opened a temple in la and at this point was when he started moving away from traditional christianity and referring to himself as a god he claimed his goal was communism but that's kind of hard to achieve when you consider yourself a god yeah the people's temple ran medical and social programs for the needy which included legal aid services free dining hall and drug rehab so it looked pretty good from the outside and in the 70s he started gaining political influence and he got the support of Panthers, including Angela Davis, who's one of their most famous members. However, his followers, or church members, were expected to work long hours for no pay, turn over all personal wealth, raise their children within his commune, and break contact with family members outside of the church. And he even had the parents sign documents saying they had molested their children, as a way to force them to show their commitment to the cult, and so he could blackmail them from leaving. That's crazy. Ex-members had also reported being beaten, and he would perform fake cancer healings, so pretend he could cure cancer, among other illnesses. Also often spotted wearing dark sunglasses and traveling with bodyguards. And in the early 70s, a magazine article tried to reveal the truth and all the abuse but everyone started panicking and he got all the followers worked up and he started looking for somewhere they would be safe during an apocalypse or he sent a small group of people to establish the commune in the wilderness of guyana which is a small country in south america in 1977 him and more than 1,000 followers joined everyone else in guyana he claimed that this was the best place for them because a lot of wilderness still so that there wasn't a lot of like strict policing or laws so they could live without government or media interference they converted their section of the jungle into an agricultural commune and that's when people started calling it jonestown instead okay. of calling it the people's temple he would have long rambling monologues played over megaphones throughout the commune while everyone worked and he took away their passports and medication forced them to work long days, and at night they had to attend classes where he basically disputed his bullshit about the world ending and him being a god and so on. Members were encouraged to tell on each other, so if somebody broke a rule or whatever. They were also, because this is a very undeveloped country in South America, they were faced with a lot of tropical diseases and a lot of new bugs they'd never experienced, and they didn't have medicine with them yeah so they just had to deal with it they were able to send letters to family members and call them but there was like always someone there monitoring or they read their letters so that they couldn't say the truth yeah he had armed guards walking around the commune which he called the red brigade basically just making sure everyone followed the rules he also banned sex outside of marriage except he basically had sex with everyone. So it was okay for him, but not anybody else. Yeah. He just much. wanted to control everybody. Yeah. And bang everyone. Yeah. But he was against homosexuality. That's being a hypocrite. Yep. 
he um he said he was the only true heterosexual and he claimed that him having sex with the men wasn't sex it was getting them to be more connected to him spiritually and at one point there was a parent of a member who had moved and taken her kids who ended up winning custody of the child and came and like got the kid or something was they had to go take the kid over so his paranoia got worse after that because once they moved he thought we're fine like no one's gonna come after us anymore and then Mm -hmm. once they got custody he started freaking out he was very addicted to drugs and clearly very mentally ill and it was getting worse he started comparing himself to jesus christ and he had a throne in the main building he's convinced the media and the government were out to get him and that's when he started bringing in more weapons and more people had access to weapons so not just his guards and there were just guns and machetes that just anyone could have in case people tried to break in he had them thinking that any day now someone was going to come and try to kill them all and he even had angela davis thought this too like from what he was reporting to her and other members of the black panther over his megaphones they started playing like encouraging messages from her directly to them Mm -hmm. and at some point during this whole situation he started what he called white knights which were they basically practiced mass suicide so what lovely they, yeah so they pretended to all kill themselves and their children but it was fake family members of the cult members who were receiving letters and phone calls were getting increasingly concerned because they were so censored no one sounded right they didn't sound like themselves so they yeah. could tell something was up also who just goes across the world to follow some random dude yeah not normal thinking that he is their leader yeah so a family of cult um Family members of a cult member contacted California Congressman Leo Ryan, and then Ryan organized a group, including journalists, to go on a what he called a fact-finding mission to Jonestown. They arrived November 17th, 1978, and Jonestown was very welcoming to them. They made them a big feast. They had, like, a dance party. Like, everyone seemed to be in great spirits, they having a good time. a good show, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretend nothing's wrong, and it's... People who are against it are just crazy, like those grandparents. But then a cult member on the 18th tried to stab him. So he was like, yeah, I'm gonna go now. So he he had flown in on like a private plane. So he cut the trip short. It was supposed to be a few days. It ended up being one. So he had been approached by about a dozen different members who wanted to leave. Mm-hmm. So he was gonna take them with him when he left. And some of the guards were escorting him there. So this is now November 18th, 1978. As they started getting on the plane, the guards that were escorting them started shooting them. Oh, lovely. Leo Ryan himself was shot, I don't know how many times, but the articles put it more than enough times to kill him. So quite a few. Yeah. Two photographers were actually able to get footage. One got photos, one got a recording of this happening before they were also shot dead and two other people were killed as well some of the people in the group that were trying to leave got hurt and then they just ran into the forest to hide and one of them is jackie spearer i think i'm saying that right who actually later became a democratic congresswoman and she's been representing california's 14th district since 2008 a fun little fact while all this shit started going down 
Jones made an announcement over his big speakers that it was time for the final white night as the military or whoever was about to come kill them all. The message was sent into their compound in Georgetown, which is the main city in Guyana, and to San Francisco. He told them Ryan was murdered by soldiers who had come to torture and murder them, which meant that the only thing left to do was to commit a, quote, revolutionary suicide. So he had them all come into the main building, and they all lined up to receive their cups of cyanide punch and syringes. Some members were just cool with it, were just going with it. They were the ones who were obviously more deep in. Others were not so sure, but didn't really get a choice. Yeah. They started off with the children. More than 300 children were poisoned, and that's what the syringes were for. That's to sad. drop it in their mouths. Uh, their parents. The children wouldn't even know what's going on. No, and they have no idea, like, what's even happening at all in their lives, or that this isn't normal life, or yeah. anything like that. And the whole ordeal was actually recorded, and the FBI recovered audio tapes and like, you can hear the whole thing happening, and the kid's crying, and it's really awful. Stephen Jones was the biological son. Him and other kids were in Georgetown playing a basketball game when this all happened, and he was able to contact the San Francisco branch and stop them, but he wasn't able... Yeah. So stop at least some of them. Yeah, so no one in San Francisco that we know of actually went through with it, which is really good. Yeah. But he wasn't able to get to all the followers in Georgetown. So one woman named Sharon Amos killed her three children and then herself. And then Stephen tried to go to the U.S. Embassy, but they weren't taking him seriously. They weren't listening to him. Just this kid was running there screaming about mass suicide, and they've no idea what he's going on about and don't believe him at all but he actually would have been too late anyways to at least save everyone Guyanese troops arrived so like the country's military arrived at the commune the next morning it was silent and it was very misty so they were worried they were about to be ambushed but as they started creeping around they just found dead bodies everywhere few people started coming out of the woods once they saw the troops there's one old woman who had actually slept through the whole thing she'd gone to bed early and didn't wake up until the troops showed up the next day she just woke up or yeah and then you wake up not even knowing yeah and you wake up and then as far as you can see everyone's dead because everyone else who lived was hiding yeah so yeah that'd be crazy jones himself um, was found dead of a self-inflicted gun wound. They assume it was self-inflicted. There's nothing to point towards it not being. And I wasn't able to find this, but I'd heard before on another podcast who covered this, that everyone inside the building, the way they were laying was, like, pointing towards him in, like, the front and center. So there was over 900 people dead, and only 33 people survived. But that 33 doesn't count the people in San Francisco. Okay. But still, though, that's too many deaths. Yeah. Over, like, for no reason mm-hmm. at all. And all those children, like, they were helpless. Yeah. And innocent. Yeah, and didn't even know enough to know if they believed this guy. Yeah. 
And if your parent's telling you, oh, yeah, drink this out of the syringe, they're not going to say no. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like The FBI came in shortly after. They found recordings of the entire thing. Over 1,000 propaganda recordings, sermons, and conversations that all made it very clear what had just happened. Also with the survivors. So this was the largest intentional instance of death in American history before 9-11. Wow. And more than two-thirds of the victims were black. He had quite a few black followers from his work with the Black Panthers and everything, and how that was super rare for those days. Yeah. More than 400 bodies were unclaimed, and they're all buried in Evergreen Cemetery in Oakland, California, where a lot of his followers were from. And there's a big memorial for the victims um, in that cemetery. So the three sons who were away at the basketball game were Stephen, Jim Jr., and Tim. And they were playing against the Guyanese national team. And then Stephen was later arrested on suspicion of a betting mass murderer and spent three months in prison in Guyana, which is insane because he tried to warn them and they didn't listen yeah, to him. Yeah, they didn't believe him. So then they tried to blame him because there was no one else alive to blame. But if it was him, why would he tell them? Exactly. He wouldn't because of thought. Exactly. So then I have some stuff about the psychology behind cults. So they seem attractive because they promote the illusion of comfort. So they make you think that you're going to have the perfect life when you join. They also satisfy the human desire for absolute answers by stuff like him saying he's a god people with low self-esteem are more likely to be persuaded and cults don't necessarily seek out these people but they're easier to break down so easier to get them into the cult yeah easy to break down and then build them back up and make them think the cult is offering the support they need new new members are love bombed so this means they're constantly seduced and complimented in order to train their brain to associate associate the cult with acceptance and love and women are more likely to join a cult 70 percent of cult members globally and there's no like exact reason why but there's a few theories some psychologists suggest it's because women attend more social gatherings others believe it has to do with historical female oppression so like women these days are more likely to go no fuck you i'm gonna go do what i want and then end up joining a cult others Blame it on young women being taught to seek attention of men to have purpose since most cults are. Those are some pretty good theories, though. Yeah. They are. Yeah. I would think it's probably a bit of all of them. Yeah, I do kind of agree with all of them. Yeah. And this is interesting. Many cult members have actually previously rejected religion. So even though a lot of cults appear to be religious, yeah. um, they often rejected it previously. Yeah, but if they're, like, trying to, like, build up their confidence and everything like when they're getting them in there they're not really probably pushing the religion part of it right like they probably don't do that until after they get everybody there and everybody like somewhat comfortable yeah and then they're like oh they trust me now so yeah or it's like it's a new wave of religion it's a new kind of modern religion yeah they can say anything to make it sound good right many members are young intelligent people who come from sheltered backgrounds and these sheltered backgrounds often mean they're constantly striving for perfectionist goals and have a history of failing to achieve intimacy and blaming others for their failures making them prime targets 
and the blaming others culture very us against them hence the cutting your family members off it's very we're the only people that matter fuck everyone else Mm -hmm. which is essentially my next point cult leaders make members feel superior to people not in the cult and they use this to isolate them from their friends and family who are not members well it makes sense though yeah it does yeah and it works and it's it's worked for years with just non-cult religion Mm -hmm. just going well they're not christian so we don't like them yeah even within different forms of christianity and other religions cult leaders are typically masters at mind control and brainwashing has never been confirmed by psychology as like an official term yeah but but they do a lot of convincing obviously yes and they feel like how they said that like some women would be easy targets if they want attention or something or if they haven't like been with somebody or something Mm -hmm. and then someone is trying to make them feel good about themselves they're gonna jump on that right yeah like and these people are good at make about good at selling things just like how he got people to buy live monkeys he was good at selling this as an ideal life Mm -hmm. They often use, as this worded it, trickery to control people. So they often use stuff like public humiliation, self-incrimination, like the false confessions to hurting their children, brainwashing by repeating distortions and lies until it becomes difficult to distinguish between cult life and reality. I could see that because yeah. like, if you tell somebody something every single day of their life, it's like like if someone's like mentally or physically or even emotionally abusing you like if Mm -hmm. they're telling you something bad about yourself you eventually start believing it you know what I mean like and yeah and it goes back to a person who says they love me and care about me is saying this is a fact why -hmm. would I believe why would I believe the internet over them or why would I believe that person who doesn't know me as well over them yeah when this person seems to know me best and paranoia they also convince members through the same thing that people are out to get them or the people who don't believe this hate you or whatever members obviously don't know they're in a cult no one wakes up yeah, and goes told that right? no and no one wakes up gee i want to join a cult today that sounds like fun yeah, like exactly. they don't realize until they're in too deep when it's already too late and they're going to be probably murdered for leaving yeah exactly it's also theorized that part of not realizing they're in cult in a cult when it's obvious to everyone else is because some people by nature are more willing to see perceived benefits than potential dangers. Yeah. So you're more likely to think of the positive. Yeah, because um, you try to see the good in people. mm -hmm. Or if you're trying to give people the benefit of the doubt, and then they're really not doing anything good, but you Mm -hmm. don't know that at the time, right? Yeah, and even with, like, physical activities and stuff, this can apply, like, swimming could be a lot of fun, but you could also drown. But you're going to focus on the fact that it's fun. Yeah, not that you're going to drown. Yeah, same Because it's only a possibility, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, there's there's dangers with everything, even eating food. You can choke and die, but people still have to eat, right? Yeah. You could breathe in something toxic, but you still can't stop yourself from breathing. Exactly. And not all cults are religious, but they often operate in seemingly religious ways without actually having anything to do with religion yeah and cult life can have lasting and dangerous effect so it often takes former members years to overcome the emotional damage some long-lasting effects are heightened paranoia sobriety and humorlessness mystical states 
compulsive attention to detail, ritualism, altered sexual interest, or loss of libido, which is actually similar symptoms to temporal lobe epilepsy. Wow. Yeah, so it's often, like, even if you get your family member out, you still have to, like, it's almost like you have to brainwash them back into believing reality. Yeah. And you often have to use the exact same tactics the cult used on them to get them to believe the truth. Yeah, otherwise you're just going to think that you're making it up. Yeah. So some variables that may influence vulnerability to cult recruitment are generalized ego weakness and emotional vulnerability, tendency toward disassociative states, so disconnecting from one's thoughts, feelings, or sense of identity. So if you're already kind of questioning existence. Yeah. Difficult, strained, or non-existent family relationships and support systems. So if you don't have anyone like to back you up and say, hey, that uh, new club you joined seems really weird. Yeah. If you don't have anyone to say anything, then you're not yeah. going to know the difference. Yeah. Or if you never had a healthy relationship, even with a friend. Exactly. Poor means of dealing with urgent matters of survival. History of severe child neglect or abuse, which makes sense. They use the same yeah. um, emotional abuse tactics. That's what I was going to say. They're abusing them the whole time. Like, yeah. not just the children, but the adults, too. And they yeah. just think it's okay, right? So they don't. Yeah, and if you're used to being treated that way in your life, then yeah. you're not going to notice. Then you think it's normal, right? Mm-hmm. Um, exposure to distinct or unconventional family patterns. So being raised by like hippies who don't believe in Western medicine or they don't wear shoes or you go to an alternative school. Um, enjoyment or abuse of controlled substances. Unmanageable and debilitating situational stress and anxiety. And unbearable socioeconomic conditions now obviously if you have one just because oh you might like to smoke pot or drink on the weekends doesn't mean you're going to join a cult yeah or just because you're in abusive relationship doesn't mean it you have to like one influence doesn't mean you have to think everyone approaching you is trying to recruit you into a cult yeah but i would assume multiple it usually has to be multiple multiple influences like or all that stuff put together, like even just a few things. Yeah, and like more than one of those nine different factors. Yeah. Could technically, but like I also saw somewhere else stuff like like an example of a person would be the youngest kid just moved out. Um, you're recently separated and you've had to relocate. So you're living alone in a new city where you don't know anywhere one and you don't really have anyone super close to confide in mm-hmm. is usually it just seems like it often comes back to um poor support systems yeah i'm gonna show you a picture now especially if you're lonely yeah yeah and like that's also because then you just want to be around people right yeah and when you're like in a new place and you don't know anyone you're more likely to go seeking those social interactions and then you see an advertisement for a free dinner like there's i don't remember which cult it was but there was one that did like they started you off with free spaghetti dinners and then they would kind of preach at the dinner but people were like ah it's free like i'm not interested but it's free food so i'm gonna stay and they got a lot of coming back yeah Yeah. and they got a lot of young people that way Mm mm-hmm but then they're slowly brainwashing you the whole time while you're yeah. there. Some like overhead shots. 
of after. It's just all the people. That's insane. The amount of bodies. Mm-hmm. And the fact that there's so many people outside because they didn't all fit inside. Yeah, I can't believe that. Like, it looks like a graveyard with no headstones. Yeah. Is that the leader? No. No? This is him. Kind of a funny-looking dude. Yeah. I just can't believe he would do that to so many people. That's insane. Yeah. And children. Yeah. That's what makes me the most sad about it. The kids. Like, it's bad enough that there was so many people, but the helpless children. And here he is with his monkeys that he would sell. I could see. I can see just by looking at that picture how he could gain people's trust. In. Yeah. But can you imagine a dude just showing up your door to, with monkeys and, hey, you want to buy one? No, I couldn't. But people probably just thought that it was really rare and cool, maybe. Yeah. And a lot of people haven't actually seen monkeys. So if someone just shows up with a monkey and they're like, hey, you want to buy it? Well, especially this was in like late 40s the 1940s so like zoos weren't even super popular yeah yet, back then, and, like no. there was little exposure to exotic animals and it also wasn't that insane to have an exotic pet whereas now if your neighbor had a pet monkey you'd think they were fucking crazy but it wasn't that weird yeah it was more cool that they were able to get an exotic pet mm-hmm oh that is the insanity of Joseph. And that's where the the don't drink the Kool-Aid thing comes from. Okay. But it actually was not Kool-Aid. Yeah. It was Flavor-Aid, which is like a cheap knockoff. So man was even cheap. Yeah, I guess He took so. all of their worldly possessions and all their money, and he couldn't even afford real Kool-Aid. Oh, I can't really Yeah. That's just sad. Mm-hmm. 900 people. Over 900 people. I don't know. I'm kind of like wondering what he was thinking like how could he get into that mind frame yeah like like before he started all of this like how did he get like he must have been something must have happened to him for him to be like that we studied hitler i guess but it's interesting the different people he studied like he studied karl marx and hitler and joseph stalin but i guess the nazi party at the beginning was actually socialist it was actually more left wing than how it ended so i so do you think like that wasn't his plan from the beginning to kill everybody i don't know like Um, do you think maybe he just wanted the people to like follow him and do what he said yeah and use them obviously for their money or whatever i think the drug abuse definitely contributed to it because he definitely yeah started off way calmer um he was a street preacher for a while and was just and he said his initial goal was communism he was kind of going for it and was kind of getting there except for his whole god thing and then the drug abuse and the mental illness yeah all together yeah nope does not it's interesting like there's been a few people who got out who have talked about it but it's mostly been pretty hush hush I saw an episode of Long Island Medium a really long time ago. I love Teresa. And there was there was a woman who was uh, a survivor who was a child that survived, but her mom died there. Like, like from this? Yeah. Oh, wow. She was, they were getting on the plane, and her mom was shot, and her, and her sister got out. And she That's was crazy. She was with, meeting with Teresa to speak to her mom again, and she was like, in her 40s or 50s, and like it had been a really long time, and she was like, finally really 
coming to terms with what happened and I can imagine seeing something like it. that as a child though. And obviously if her mom was there, she was in the cult. Yeah. So like those kids were in the cult. So they're lucky that they got away and that they mm-hmm. didn't die. And especially after they would have found out what happened to not just their mom, but like you said, over nine hundred people. Yeah. They are so lucky children that they got away. Mm-hmm. Because their mom like I don't remember the episode very well, but they were one of the groups of people who had gone to the congressman and said, we want to get out of here. Mm-hmm. So mom had already realized that this was not okay, good. Yeah. This was not somewhere she wanted her children to be anymore and that it was going downhill and going somewhere dangerous because he was just getting more and more paranoid and freaked out. And with the mass suicide drills it was probably a moment for a lot of people where they were like, there's no going back from here. Yeah. But a realization. Yeah. But we're fucked. If we're practicing killing ourselves, then definitely not going to be good. Nope. And I'm not sure. I wasn't able to find if all of the drills they did were exactly like what ended up happening or not. Or if they like pretended to use the weapons as well. Because they had a lot of weapons. Yeah. But there wasn't really information on that because there's not very many people who survived. And everyone who survives doesn't want to talk about it. Like, I'm surprised that he didn't use the people as his guards. Or like, as his protection. He did. He had... Like some people. of them were, yeah. Like the armed that? guards that were going around were just members that he picked okay. to be the guards. Okay, that's what I was gonna say. And he had people. He had some guys like as his personal bodyguards when he'd go out. Yeah. Like in California before they moved, especially. I don't think they ever really left the commune much in Guyana. But it sounds like he was very scared, but he also knew what he was doing was wrong. Yeah, he knew obviously, or he wouldn't need protection. Well, exactly, and if he wouldn't have had his men kill the congressman. Yeah, exactly. Like, if he didn't know that what he was doing was fucked up, he wouldn't have prevented it from getting out there, because the congressman would have taken these Well, yeah, and it was obviously out there, too, if there's over 900 people there, and he had more than one place they were at. Yeah. In, like, different places, so. Yeah. So, my grandmother, when she was a kid, her dad was in the war. He was in the Vietnam War. Okay. And he uh, he died. And then her mother died when she was 12. Gosh. So my grandmother grew up on the streets of Toronto. She had eight older brothers. And one of them raised her. All the other ones left her for dead, pretty much. They didn't take wow. care of her. It was just like her and her brother were... It was her and her brother. Own. And they were living on the streets because they couldn't afford to have their own place mm-hmm. or anything. And... They were doing everything they could to find food and everything like that. And this is just, like, what she has told me in the past Mm -hmm. that I know of. But anyway, so she grew up without her parents. So that must have been, like, super, super hard for her. And then she met my grandpa when he was 18. I'm not sure how old she was. She's a couple years older than him. Hmm. But he was 18 at the time, and they got married, and then they had four kids together. How did she meet him? I'm not sure exactly how she met him, but I think she met him in Hamilton. I'm not sure how she got there. Either way, so they had four children together, and then I'm not exactly sure about the time for this either, but when my mother was a child, she had a brain injury. So what happened was she went to sleep one night, and she didn't wake up the next day, and she was in a coma. So the way that 
obviously the children were in school. It was mm-hmm. during the week. And the children were in school. And my grandpa worked at Hydro One at the time. And they lived in Carlton Place. And Hydro One wasn't very far from their house. And he came home for lunch every day. Mm-hmm. And she would usually have lunch ready for him when he got home. Because he only had a certain amount of time, right? Right. So he didn't have a lot of time for lunch. He'd come home, yeah. have lunch with her, and then go back to work. And he got home, and she wasn't awake. She was still in bed. And my grandmother was a very early riser. Mm-hmm. Like, she'd be up at 5 or 6, cleaning the house or whatever, getting stuff ready. And so she just didn't wake up. And he found her. And then, obviously, got her to the hospital mm-hmm. or whatever. And she had surgery. But she was still in a coma. She was in a coma for two years. Holy shit. She lived in the Carlton Place Hospital for two years. And then when she woke up, she was not the same person at all. She didn't know anything. She didn't know who anybody was. She didn't know her own children, didn't know her husband. She was, It was like a baby, like mm-hmm. being reborn again. She didn't know how to eat, how to talk, how to walk, nothing. Wow. Yeah. So, my grandfather had to reteach her everything. And how old were the kids at this point? I think my mom was 12 when this happened. And she was born in 78. So, I think it was around 12, she said. So, the kids were all still home? They were all still home home. and they were still young. Actually, I think think the oldest was moved out, who Mm. would be my Uncle Mike. There's only one boy and three girls. Mm. But anyway, I think he was moved out, but the rest were there. And then, yeah, so it was pretty rough for them. Once that all happened, and I just couldn't imagine going through it. But she did it. and She, she did, and she is still alive today. Did she gain her memory back? She did some. She remembers her childhood. Mm-hmm. She does remember growing up in Toronto, and she remembers bits and pieces about it all. And she does remember her parents a little bit. But he had to tell her all that again and embed it in her memory again. Did she gain memories back of him or the kids? She did some, I think, but not fully, no. Uh And, like, ever since then, she has been, like, she's, you can tell, it seems like, you can tell that there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. Like, now she has dementia, so she's a little bit worse now. Yeah. But when I was... And I should add this, actually. Before she had her aneurysm, Mm -hmm. she had two of them, actually. I think one while she was in the coma and one Mm. that put her into the coma. But um, she was an alcoholic before that. So anyway, and then after that, so they had to reteach her everything. And then she finally was able to come home Mm -hmm. after that long. Two years of being in the hospital. And then... It was just, my grandpa had to take care of her, like. She wasn't able to, like, function. No, like, it was hard for her. It took her a long time to get back Mm -hmm. to where she was, and she's still not 100%. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, he did his best that he could, but it would be super, super hard, especially on a man. Especially with kids. Yeah, and raising children, too, on your own, and then Mm -hmm. working a full-time job, working overtime. Yeah. And yeah. Wow. But um so she does remember bits and pieces. I don't think she remembers the actual aneurysm. Probably I don't not. think she remembers the coma. I don't think she remembers living in the hospital. 
but I'm not sure. I try not to bring it up because I don't want to, Mm -hmm. just in case. Like, I don't know how she would feel about it if she does remember, right? So I try not to bring it up or say anything. Mm -hmm. But... Especially if she has dementia now. Yeah, she does. You never know how she'll react. Exactly, right? And she's like... Even with the brain aneurysms and the dementia, though, she is 70 years old, and she is still doing amazing. That's good. Like, she doesn't forget her family. That's really good. She remembers all her family. Mm -hmm. She's just not very good with names. Right. Or, like, numbers, or, like, she can't... Or specific memories. Yeah. Like, some memories are not there anymore, but other stuff, like her childhood, she remembers. And she's still able to, like, recognize her children, just not necessarily who's who? No, like, she knows who's who for her children. I just mean, like, saying names, like, pronouncing words and, like, stuff like that, like, anything hard, or if you ask her something and she feels like she's on the spot, it will, she'll just go silent because she really has to think, like, a lot harder than we would, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? But other than that, she's, she's doing very good. That's good. Is she the one you showed me the picture of earlier with the donkeys? Yes. That was so cute. (sighs) Yes. She loves animals. Oh yeah, she uh, she is the sweetest now, the oh, sweetest. Really and she's happy now too. That's why part of me thinks that she doesn't remember, like the aneurysm or yeah, the coma or living in the hospital or. I wonder what the stats are on that. Like, yeah, how know. many people remember like on the, the incident? Yeah, I don't know. Or even it's if not common, even if they do remember bits and pieces, it wouldn't like when you're in a coma, you wouldn't remember that probably. Yeah. But, I don't know. Yeah, because we don't even know for sure. Unless she remembers her brother who raised her. But if you talk about her other brothers, they've been dead for a while, so they all died before her. So she doesn't, she didn't get along with them as well. And they didn't put in the effort to take care of her, they just left her for dead. And, like, I don't know, she just was never really close with them, so... Not really space to bother remembering. Yeah, like, she doesn't really think about them ever. Like, if you mention them or say their name, she's like... Like, she has a brother named Barry, and if you say Barry, she'll be like, Barry who? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. when she should know that's her brother. Yeah. Type of thing, you know? But it's... I think it also has to do with she tries to block it out. Yeah. Because she doesn't want to remember them because they never tried for her or helped her. Yeah. But... It's interesting... How well people can bounce back from stuff like that. I know. Like, specifically from the stuff in her childhood, but then also from the brain aneurysms, but then both together. Exactly. And then she was an alcoholic, so she was also having seizures, too. Oh, shit. From the, like, she got epilepsy from the seizures and... I'm pretty sure. I think I think the brain aneurysm was caused by the alcoholism. I'm not 100% sure. I'm not a doctor. But. It was probably at least a contributing factor yes. because alcohol use does deteriorate your health. Exactly. It might not have been, like, the only cause, but it yeah. probably contributed to it. Definitely didn't help. No. Definitely no. did not help. No, that would not. Wow. She is. I just, I can't believe that she's made it to 70 years old. Yeah, with all I of can't that shit. It. I can't believe the life that she's lived and she is here and... I complain when I stub my toe. Like, I just can't believe it. And, like... Do you know how old she was when she had the aneurysms? Or approximately? Um, no, I don't. I'm gonna say around... 
I'm gonna say probably around like 30 or 40. Huh? Probably so around young that. Yeah, for young. that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like just it was it took a big toll on her, of course, and yeah, I'm everybody sure. else in the family. Yeah. Well that would have been hard for the kids. Definitely. Two years. Yeah. Like your mom first two years as a teen. Yeah. Doesn't have Like her my mom. mom was just becoming a teenager and mm-hmm. For a girl, that's a big thing. Yeah. Like, it probably is for a guy, too, but for a girl, it really is, and you need your mom. Especially, like... Well, I can honestly say, I needed my mom. Yeah. Especially in the 80s, and I you didn't talk to your dad about your period. Exactly. Only even, your mom, right? Even now, lots of people do. I'm still... My dad is chill about it because he has two daughters and had two sisters, but I still feel weird talking about it with him because yeah. he doesn't understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. It is weird. Yeah, wow. So that would have, and it would have been, like, it would have been very weird for my grandpa, too. Mm-hmm, for sure. To all of a sudden Because go... he's got three girls. Yeah. Three girls and one boy. And then his wife is just, like, I yeah. don't know how someone can just keep on pushing and keep on pushing. And... But it's good they did, because she made it out. Yeah. some people and might not have. he did, because it's a good thing he was there. That's why people... That hope of what happened with her its probably why people hang on so long with, like, family members who are on life support for five years. It's like, but what if? I know. And she was the what if. I know she was. I know. And it's a good thing that I don't know exactly how it happened. Like, I don't know if she had told him that if anything ever happens to me, this is what I want. I don't know Mm -hmm. if she said that. Or I don't know if he decided that on his own. I'm assuming she didn't plan for it. And he decided that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But when it's your husband or your wife, it is really hard. Yeah. Especially if you have young children. Well, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like when my parents are senile. <laughs> and, like, having even having to put them in a home or having to honest go know you're getting care. Like, honest to God... I can't even think about it because it makes me start like getting upset yeah. and emotional because even the fact my grandmother is in a nursing home, she is doing so awesome there though. Mm-hmm. She is healthy and she wasn't before because mm-hmm. she just decided, oh, I'm not taking my pills or I'm not going to drink my insure so that I can gain weight. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that screw you all and there wasn't I don't have to, to listen her. to the doctor yeah. but that's because we're her family right so yeah. she can just say screw you and nobody's gonna pick at her because they're gonna leave her alone but when it's a stranger it's a little bit different and with the family doctor's mm-hmm. help we decided it was the best thing for her to go there and that would give her the best quality of life because mm-hmm. she would take her pills and she would do what she's supposed to do and she did and she's gained weight when she went into that nursing home she was 78 pounds holy shit she is now overweight thank god (laughs) that she is overweight now and not overweight like obsessively or anything but she is healthy and she is happy she is not angry she's happy that's good yeah and she loves it like joan is very bitter very and she has like and the sad part is my grandmother would have never went to a home on her own yeah and the problem is about the home that she's in they will not keep you they cannot keep you if you decide you're going home so if you're put there by your family 
and then you decide, oh, I'm calling a taxi to take me home. They cannot stop you. They cannot stop you. What we had to do, it's very sad, but we had to sedate her to take her. But she never tried to leave. That's good. She's talked about leaving, Mm -hmm. but she has never actually tried. And the old grandmother that I knew would have called a taxi and would have went right back home. And she would have freaked right out and lost her shit at us for trying to do that to Mm -hmm. her. You know what I mean? But we didn't give her a choice because it wasn't about, like, what we wanted. It was about her health. Yeah. And it was about her safety and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. And, like, since she's been there, like, she used to smoke a lot and she would fall asleep with a cigarette. And my grandpa was not sleeping at night because he was worried she was going to yeah. burn the house down. And she would never go to bed. Is he still around? He is. He lives in a different house now. He sold the house that they were in, probably wow. because it's too hard for him. Yeah. But either way, he's in the country now, and he likes that. They lived in town before, mm-hmm. but he's in the country now, and he is enjoying that. That's good. Yes, but he still visits her every single day. That's good. And he brings her scratch tickets every single day. <laughs> he used to come and bring her, like, tea every day because mm-hmm. she really likes tea. But he can't with the virus. Right, yeah. With COVID-19. But he's still able to visit her often? Like, he, he can visit her, but he can't go in. Mm. So they can't actually see each other, so they have window visits. Oh. So he'll pull yeah. up outside her bedroom window, and she'll go to the window, and they'll call each other, and they'll talk on the phone and look at each other through oh, the window. Yeah. It is cute, but it's also sad yeah. that he can't see her. The last time we seen her was Christmas Day. This year? Yeah. Which we were lucky enough to yeah. get her out that day. Luckily. One of the homes in Peterborough has, like, a... A porch, and then there's, like, a decent amount of space out front, so the resident can sit on the porch, and then their family member can sit away, which is nice, but not all of them are like that. Yeah, yeah that the... is nice, though. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Disturbed Minds. Please like and subscribe wherever you listen, and don't forget to follow the show on Instagram for show details, pictures, and more.